listening to First Church Charlotte. Greetings, everyone. Pastor Nathan here. We are continuing our Bible study series entitled Talking to People About God. I want to give you a little background on why I chose this Bible study series. I have already shared with you some of the data from it that I believe in the very first lesson I talked about how uh, so many people struggle. Uh, I don't mean just random people, I mean believers, church-going people. How many of them struggle to talk about God to unchurched people and unbelievers. And I I actually came across this information in an article in the New York Times, and I wasn't really... Um, I, I didn't put it in that first lesson, but I want to share some of it with you now so you'll understand how we got here and why we're talking about this. The article was written a couple years ago, and the title of the article is, It's Getting Harder to Talk About God. And the journalist is uh, Jonathan Merritt, who grew up in the evangelical movement. I believe his father pastors a megachurch somewhere. And he has broad exposure to uh, the evangelical movement, um, which is of all the various, shall we say, large religious movements in America today, um, they are probably the most consistent in urging people to talk to other people about God. And his own research was pointing out that uh, they failed to do so. Um, we are we are not easily classified as evangelical. Um, we are uh, we kind of have a niche, uh, a little different from just that broad categorization. But it's even so, uh, we share this with them in that we are we we very much want to talk to people about God. We have people in our life that <clears throat> we we feel a spiritual responsibility towards. If we do not feel that way, we are deeply failing to perceive the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I want very much to be spiritually authentic. I don't want to just have a form of godliness or a spiritual-sounding label, but I, in my quiet time, in my devotion time, my prayer time, I, I, I actually find myself uh, quite a lot uh, seeking, thinking, praying, reflecting on what does that what does that mean? Um, perhaps if you didn't grow up in the church, that doesn't strike you as much um, because in your experience, there's kind of like BC, before Christ and after Christ. Um, but if you've grown up in the church and all of your formative experiences were in the church and uh, you, you might be somewhat more inclined like I am to worry about whether or not you just inherited something or whether you are sincerely pursuing um, the the heart of God and the mission of God. Um, so uh, that's probably one of the reasons why I'm inclined to these kind of thoughts and Bible studies. Let me read. Let me read some of the words of the journalist um, when he talks about how um, over seventy percent of Americans identify with as Christian, but you wouldn't know it from listening to them talk. Over 70% of Americans identify as Christian, but you wouldn't know it from listening to them. The overwhelming majority of people say that they don't feel comfortable speaking about faith most of the time. 
Now, we, in our pursuit of God's heart and God's mission, we have to care about how we are fulfilling that mission. Um, if our heart is changed into the likeness of God's heart, then having been filled by his love, we will see the world in which we are placed as the mission for which God has placed us. The mission is only difficult when we fail to perceive the heart of God. Once you perceive the heart of God, you understand why we're here, and you begin to be motivated toward that. Uh, the journalist tells, uh, as an illustration to the article, he tells about how during the Great uh, Depression, uh, maybe I should give some background. There was coming out of the Great Depression uh, a religious awakening um, in America. It wasn't just the Great Depression. It was the, it was World War One and the tragedy of that, the Great Depression, and coming out of that. Uh, was really the birth of the apostolic movement, a new way of serving God, a new way of worshiping God, uh, was developed as a response to that new hunger, that changing moment of spiritual history. Uh, let's back up further than that, and let's try to understand how this moment could happen like that. So before the revival that is really the result of, uh, shall we say, how we got here. Um, really, uh, the Pentecostal apostolic movement was birthed out of that, and it was birthed in places like Topeka, Kansas, birthed in places like Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Um, it, it birthed out of that, and we, there was a new language uh, people started talking more about being spirit-filled in a, a different way, meaning a different, slightly different thing to the listener. Um, you would go to their services, their worship would be quite different. The styles in which they prayed one for another, it, it, there was a big change. Before that, the awakening, awakening had been led by men like George Whitefield and uh, John Wesley. Uh, they arose in a day in which the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church had grown quite stale, and their generation was not responding to the same style, the same language, and out of their new language, <laughs> I'm going to explain this, the new things they talked about, they called it a method of a systematically serving God where your life became testimony. Um, so that is how Methodists, Methodist, what we think of as Methodists, uh, was founded. It was a great revival. I believe God was in it. Uh, there was a great hunger, a great passion. Um, but it didn't use this, the same language, the same style. It felt different. A lot of times when there's change within our culture, you need to find a new way to talk to people. This is uh, what the writer of the article is going to express here. During the Great, Great Depression, the playwright Thornton Wilder remarked, quote, the revival in religion will be a rhetorical problem. New persuasive words for defaced and degraded ones. Uh, the playwright knew that in times of rapid social change, God talk is difficult. It's often difficult to muster. I, I would say it uh, somewhat different than that, although I, not to say I can improve on it, but 
uh, within the context of our Bible study here, um, when there is tremendous change in a society, um, people look around for foundations. Uh, and they, they, they will reflect upon what came before, but they often are wearied with it and will not receive it. It's almost like a new way of talking about God must be established. Now, this is shown repeatedly in the, the revival um, of the Reformation. First, it was, um, you know, the rise of a hunger for the word. Uh, and there was the persecution of the, the, the Roman Catholic Church trying to keep the Bible from the people uh, they meant well by that. They thought it would confuse people, but the way they went about it was uh, ugly. It was it was horrible. It was evil. Um, and they out of that comes this hunger. Out of that comes Anabaptists, uh, the rise of various groups. And there's a whole history here, and uh, you know Calvinism and all of that. And it gets established. And there's a generation that is um, changed by it and holds it dear, a generation that follows. Generations usually come in threes. In any given time, there's usually grandparents, parents, and children. Um, and so that is kind of the span of a human life. And so we're always living within a stack of three generations. And as a church, we have to care and minister to all three generations, which can be quite challenging um, if you if you actually look at how we try to do that. Um, the fears of elders are very different than the fears of the youth. Um, the focus of the elders is very different than the focus of the youth. Um, we, however, have to balance this. We have to juggle the generations and balance it because that's what the Bible shows us, teaches us, manifests for us, to do. And so I feel like we are living in a change where we have to learn to talk to people, not with the language that, say, our grandparents would have used. Now, th their language was not wrong. It was beautiful. It fit perfectly to their generation, um, their style. Like, for example, when I was growing up, um, I, had, I have very vivid memories of my parents teaching uh, Bible studies. And there would be, uh, they would sit at a table and they would open a chart that had illustrations on it and charts and prophetical explanations and they open their Bibles um, and they would start talking. Um, their society started there. Their world was very common to start there with the Bible. Um, nowadays, it's hard to start Bibles. It's hard to start talking about God with the Bible because a lot of times the first victory you have is the person accepting that the Bible is the Word of God. They, they are looking at it kind of askance. They're kind of suspicious of it. And they have, to be, they have to be won over to the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the power of the Bible. Then you can have a Bible study. Um, I, I don't know if that's, I don't think that's really the way it has been in years past. That's the world we are, we are living in. Um, we have to learn how to talk to people um, in, a, in a way that they, they feel, in other words, it, it, it's effective. The, the, the style, the language, yes, it's generational. If some of our elders get exhausted with this, yes, I, I'm not unsympathetic. But you try talking to young people without being dismissive. It's, it's a, it's a, there's a challenge here, but here's the thing. The Lord told the disciples that he would give them words to speak when they stood before kings. Why is that, why is that so important? It's not as though they did not prepare to speak. 
Um, I believe they did. I believe they did prepare. I believe in the instruction of Paul to Timothy, there is this uh, direct invocation to study to show the, show himself approved. Um, get yourself together. But nothing in these men's lives had prepared them to stand before kings. There's no school for standing before ambassadors and uh, tetrarchs, and you get the idea. Emperors, there's no, how, how do you prepare for that? You don't. And the Lord says, don't be afraid. I will give you the words. One of the great successes and one of the reasons why Christianity is the largest religion in the world um, is because it has successfully found a way to take the redemptive story, the life of love, victory, and overcoming power manifest in Jesus and speak it to generation after generation after generation. Uh, we want to be effective in speaking to this generation. Uh, if we grew up in an, uh, another church culture, say, and we learned church talk, we can't go talk to neighbors and friends and use church talk. Uh, they will, they'll be kind, hopefully, if they're kind people. And they'll nod along, but that'll be the end of the conversation. Um, so we have to recognize that with changing generations, there is perhaps different ways of speaking. There is different vernacular. There's different uh, things that strike home. Uh, so real quick, let me talk about where we are and the most common thing that we face. And let me just call this uh, informally the modern spirituality. The modern spirituality is not founded upon philosophical truths or uh, religious theologies, the modern spirituality is really a celebration of transcendentalism. Now, I used a big word intentionally because I want you, uh, those of you who are studying to be effective Bible teachers and soul winners, I want you to know where people are coming from. I want you to have a sense of uh, this did not, th this didn't begin with them. Uh, this is the human way. So transcendentalism uh, really was, uh, I, th I think, best illustrated by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who moved to this, you know, Walden Pond, and he there pursued his own intuition and his own sense of moral truth. And there, with his intuition strong and his, you know, moral truth established, um, he sought to be to pursue the transcendent, the transcendent, I should say, forgive me. Um, he sought to pursue and to understand the transcendent. He didn't read what the great philosophers who had come before said and say, I'm starting here. He had read them. He was a, a very well educated and a brilliant mind, uh, amazing poet, you, you know. Um, but he, that's not where he really started at. He took all of that and kind of absorbed it, threw it over his shoulder, and said, now what do I think should be? How do I think God would act? Um, now, you t that's half of it. The other half of it for him, for transcendentalism, is a romanticism. Romanticism is to make grand um, your experience, um, your love story, uh, your feelings, your family. You make it grand in your mind. You're never practical about love if you're a romantic. You're never practical about truth if you're a romantic, and you never are practical about beauty if you're a romantic. A practical person is like, oh yeah, beautiful, never going to look like that. Never, they're never going out on a date with me. Let's see. I um, let me get back down here where I. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That's practical. Um, the romantic 
amplifies that with a sense of internal grandiosity. So you take these two themes and uh, this transcendentalism, what do I think? And then you make it grand as in I am the judge jury. And what you end up with is humanism. That's how we got here. Humanism is, it's not just that humanity is the highest ideal, and it's not just that humanity um, is the best we can accomplish. The values of humanity are the best we can accomplish. It's more than that. Um, it's actually humanity is the final arbiter, the final judge. God doesn't judge us. We judge God. That's where it all ends. Um, so most people who... And, okay, we could go a lot deeper than that. I actually have, and I have enjoyed over the years studying a lot of these kind of things and talking about Unitarianism, talking about um, humanistic universalism, um, all of these things uh, we could go deeper on. But just to think about it in terms of how people are talking about spiritual things, where they probably are starting. Now, because we're in the Bible Belt, you may talk to someone who at one time had a pretty good relationship with God, even if they are not of our theological, you know, flavor. Uh, they may have they may have grown up in Sunday school and they may have drifted from that. And those people uh, we will do well with because they speak church language. Um, it's uh, that category is shrinking, however, and the category that's growing is the people who. They basically are coming from a humanistic background. Let me say this, and I, I think it's fair, and I, I, would, I'm, I feel strongly about this. Um, humanism is not evil. However, it is uh, spiritually um, antichrist. So, so I know I just shocked you there, but I, I want to say this. Good people, by our standards, end up at this humanist place out of pragmatism. And then, to make it seem uh, more important, they will kind of grand, make it grandiose in some way to themselves. And so they'll say, having this kind of witch's brew <laughs> that I've been trying to describe here, they'll, they'll say, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious, which is code language for this. I'm open to the fact that the world may be more complex than our current level of science can explain. And I'm open to the fact that there are mysteries, whether it's dark matter or dark energy or the philosophical musings of great men. And I am open to the fact that humanity needs something more than what we are. But I've surveyed traditional religion and I found it all wanting. And so I think the best I can do is what I think, feel, decide, and believe. Um, this is where most of us find ourselves at, the spiritual but not religious. So when you're talking to these people, um, you have to be able to be accepting and kind to people who won't even grant you the Bible. You have to find a way to let them feel your kindness, your acceptance, your love, even your communal embrace, your, uh, your acceptance of them. Um, even even when they, they they don't even know if they believe in the Bible. Um, this should not be that hard for us. Why? Because remember how we started this series talking about Paul standing on Mars Hill preaching to the heathen, and they had invited him there, and uh, he preached to them, and he he never he used their philosophers. Uh, he ever never mentions Jesus by name, but he even so awakens within some of them, not all of them, important lesson there, some of them a hunger to know more. 
and we talked about the four the four L's, which I don't have in my notes. Maybe I'll be able to remember them. The first thing is listen to them. Listen to what they're saying. If you listen, they might invite you to tell. They might invite you to tell them more. Uh, the second one, if I remember correctly, was to look for what God is um, is doing. Um, and the, the last one was leave them with a promise. Um, so we're going to look at what God is doing. We're going to listen. We're going to look for what God is doing. We're going to use their language. I think that's number two. Um, so uh, it's uh, listen, use their language, look for what God is doing. That's for you. And uh, the last one was leave them with a promise. So Paul is able to do that. He's able to use their language, quote, their philosophers and poets, point out that God had uh, oh, and, and something else that he he stood with them. Um, we we all basically complimenting them for seeking after God, and 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 then telling them that that through Jesus Christ he doesn't use his name, but he's talking about Jesus Christ. There there's repentance for all and eternal life, and that's the promise he leaves them with. So uh, we have to be able to do like Paul and to talk to people in a way where they, they, we don't make enemies out of them, they're not all going to accept us. But our tone and our style is such that some of them, a good number of them, would like to know more. So I uh, had a unique opportunity uh, recently where I was asked by someone to actually have a spiritual conversation. And they started out by saying they don't know if they believe in Jesus Christ anymore. Um, they don't know if they believe in Christianity anymore. Nothing in their life had uh, inclined them to believe in Christianity anymore, in spite of the fact that at one time uh, they had. Um, I, I was, at the same time, a little bit excited because uh, this, is, this is why I exist. This is God made me for this. And, at the other, second time, and, and secondly, I was kind of afraid because um, I didn't want to mess it up. Um, and so I, I reminded myself of, of the story of Paul and how he listened. And I, I went through this process with them and I asked them questions and I, I talked about, you know, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. I talked about the historical evidence. I talked about the testimony of the disciples. I, I mean, there's, there's tremendous, uh, if you prepare, there's a tremendous, beautiful uh, story that you can tell. And um, I... I really, I felt like the Lord was with me and the Lord helped me. And the, the only thing I feel like that I did a little bit wrong was at the end, I just asked them if they understood. I didn't, I didn't respond to their statements with questions that would have made it more conversational. And next time, I have another opportunity soon. Next time, I'm going to do better on that. I'm going to not just ask them broadly, um, do you understand? I'm going to ask them questions that engage. Um, if you were in a high school debate team, this would be called <clears throat> being Socratic. You use a Socratic method where they make a statement, they make a, a claim, they tell a story, and you respond by asking um, how they arrived at that, what do they mean by that, and what you do is you at you you build trust and you suss out you you suss out their um, their truth. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? It's an imperfect way to say it, but they they suss that out. And so, um, like I could have said better things like they say something. Well, how did you arrive at that conclusion? Um, what 
What led you to that belief? I could have done better on that. I will do better on that. Let me give you some questions that would uh, help you when people say something. Why, why is that? They make a statement. Um, why does that seem like the best answer that you could find? That leads to more conversation. And then you, you listen. Uh, you use their language. You look for what God is doing. You leave them with a promise. Um, you also could say, what's, what's the backstory on what you just said? Um, have you always felt that way? You're asking for them to give you part of their heart. They cannot talk spiritually with you without giving you part of their heart. That's the path to, to, to spiritual connection. Uh, you could ask questions like, what attracted you to this belief system? Um, what do you think they get right? Um, you could also even ask bigger questions like, how do you feel that that view that you just express is, is solving some of the big questions of life for you. So I, I'm going to do better on that, and we all can do better on that. We have to see the need of the hour, that this generation may not be satisfied with the church talk we were satisfied with. Um, your friends and family may not be satisfied with your church talk. And I don't mean that bad. Your church talk is beautiful. It's our history. But if they turn off when you use your church talk, it might be time to, to slow down and ask questions and try to get at their whys. Because the questions, the patience, the love you show and the acceptance you offer uh, in that moment will create opportunities for you to tell your side, your truth, your testimony. And this is how spiritual connection is made with other people. I want to uh, finish with a practical question. You know how I'm doing questions a lot. Um, a question that I have often been, someone's tried to, whether intentionally or not, they've tried to trap me with. And it's some version of this. Do you think I am saved or do you think I'm going to hell? Um, people will often ask you that question. But here's the thing. It's not really about the words. It's not really about, do you think I'm saved? They're really trying to find out if you are going to accept them where they are as they are, or are you going to damn them where they are as they are? Their life feels deeply authentic to them. They have tried. They have struggled. They have, they have cried. Um, they have this deeply authentic experience that is, whether they admit it or not, the gift of God to them. And if they feel from you that you are going to just, uh, you're going to doom them right where they stand, uh, without any acknowledgement to what they've gone through, their loves, their tears, their family, that's the moment where they can write you off, you see. And so, so many church people get trapped into this. And we know it's a trap. Uh, let me give you some examples of this kind of a trap because it's helpful. Now, these are kind of humorous, but they're helpful examples of how a question cannot be about the question. So let's say I think I did a bad job on Sunday and I'm driving home with my wife. I may ask her, this has actually happened. Um, did you like my message? Uh, the truth is, at that moment, um, uh, because I think I did a bad job, I'm insecure. Now, sometimes I think I did a good job, so, you know, 
you know how that goes. Um, and, uh, you know, if she don't like it, I can't help she doesn't have good taste. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, a lot of times I'm insecure, and I'm not really asking whether she thinks I did a good good job. I'm asking for her to reassure me that I'm not a complete failure, that I'm not a waste of space, that, I, you know, it would have been better if I just would have stayed in construction. You know what I mean? Um, uh, that's what I'm looking for. I know I asked, did you like my message? But what I was looking for was uh, validation. Uh, you, you, you are not... You are not a waste of space. Uh, in like manner, here's another funny one. Uh, men, if your wife asks you um, if they look largish in this dress or in this outfit, do I look fat in this? <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. What they're really saying is, I, uh, you know, I'm. They're not, they're, there's really no answer whereby you can say yes because what they're asking for is reassurance in that moment. You're probably getting dressed to go somewhere. Um, they didn't just randomly pull it out and ask your opinion because they had nowhere to go. No, they're getting ready to go somewhere. And if you strip their confidence right now, it is not going to end well for you. But lucky for you, you're a church person and you have a preacher to preach your funeral. And I'll tell it at the funeral. He was a good man, but he told his wife she looked fat in her new dress on the way to church. Not going to end well. Do you see how these things are not really about this? Do you see they're not really about whether or not I preach good, I need a reassurance. They're not really about whether our wives, uh, or so really asking about if they looked large in something. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's really about something else. When a person asks that from you, they're not really interested in whether or not you think they're lost. They're trying to figure out if this is worth their time, if there's the possibility of connection with you. And so I never let myself be trapped in this. And there's a fairly straightforward way, which you've heard me teach before. It's not rocket science. Um, and that is your ready admission that you are a witness and not the judge. And truthfully, so this would be me answering something like that. I, I might would say something along the lines of, well, we know biblically that uh, it's inappropriate for us to make judgments upon others because I don't know your heart. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know how God works with you. I don't know that. Um, I, I know at best something about myself, but even that, the Bible teaches us that our own heart will deceive us. Um, and so I'm uh, eminently unqualified. I am categorically unqualified to tell you whether or not you're saved. Um, it's actually worse than that. I'm not even qualified to say whether or not I'm saved. But let me tell you what I can say. I believe I will be saved because my trust is not in me. It's in Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. I believe that my goodness was never going to be enough. Uh, so he gave me his goodness and given me an opportunity to give him my love when I didn't have goodness. He gave me goodness, righteousness, and I give him my love. And so, yes, I try to do better. I try to live as one who loves God and my life become a testimony. But I can't say in any one moment or time whether or not I'm saved. I can say I believe I will be saved because he began a work in me and he's promised that he will be with me and he's promised he will be my friend. And so I believe I will be saved. Uh, at this moment in time, I'm going to have to leave that with God. So the same thing's true for you. I believe God's working with you. I believe that God is well, just the manner in which we're having this conversation. I believe that God is working with you. And I believe there is within you the great potential to, to as it were, 
please God with your life, your choices. We already know there's a love story between God and your heart. I mean, we're having this conversation. Um, we know that, and I believe that the same one who began a good work in you will finish that good work. So I have as much faith that you'll be saved as I have faith that I'll be saved. Why? Because Jesus is our great hope. Now, okay, talking to church folks, did I kind of dodge it? Yes. I believe that I need to live a life of repentance, and I believe that I need to be adopted into, into his family. I need my sins washed. I need his name upon me. Yes, I, I believe all of that. But in that moment, it wasn't really about those things. They would have not heard any of that. So what I have to do is leave them with a promise. Do you see? I can't leave them with judgment. I have to leave them with the promise. And the promise is not about me. If I'm good enough, then I'll be saved. If that's what you believe, it's heresy. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's theological error. Christ died in vain if I could be good enough. What I have is an opportunity to live a life of worship because he gave me his blood. He covered me. He washed me. He cleansed me. And I, who have been given for much, been forgiven much, I love much. That's okay. You get the idea. I left them with a promise, not a judgment. Now, they, maybe my brother can criticize me. And if you're of a personality type, you will criticize me. And God bless you, you poor darling. Um, the life of the judger is hard. It really is. It's not just me being condescending. And I, that does sound condescending, let's be honest. It's not just that. The life of the judger is hard. Why? Because the life of the judger is a life without mercy. And what the person is left to do is to create a self-justification. And they're never good enough. And they have to live with that. They're never good enough. Oh, they'll, they'll go to their, you know, other people like them and they'll celebrate they're good enough. But at night, they'll be that, well, you're never good enough. And so that's why I say, you poor darling. <laughs> I want to live a life of mercy. I want to give mercy. Um, I, I, hopefully that makes sense to you. I want to give that person promise. I believe you're going to be saved. Just as strongly as I believe I'm going to be saved. Because here's why. Not because I've done everything right or at this moment I've done everything I will need to do as I grow in God and as I walk in the Spirit. And not because you've done everything you need to do or you're where God will have you to be in your journey. That's not why I believe we're going to be saved. I believe we're going to be saved because of the majestic work of Jesus Christ. And His love is big enough to take me where I need to be and present me faultless before the throne of His glory with exceeding joy. And I believe He's doing that for you. I believe He's taking you. I believe that's why we're having this conversation. I believe you're going somewhere in God. And I think when you get there, you're going to bear this same truth to your world. Okay, so I left them with a promise. We all need to learn how to do that. Because if we are not giving promise, dearly beloved, what then are we given? We have to receive it. We have to give it. Promise, mercy, hope. We're not saying they're perfect. We're not perfect. We're not saying they don't have things they need to do. We have things we need to do. We're not saying they don't need to repent. We need to repent. What we're saying is our God is so amazing that what He began in you, He is going to, if you'll give Him any open door, He will finish what He began in you. Lord Jesus, help us talk with people. Help us authentically share your word. 
Help us be a part of a great awakening in this generation of people turning their hearts toward you and serving you with gladness and joy and becoming the manifestation of your heart in a broken world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We love you. God bless. See you soon. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.